Good afternoon, everyone. This is the Duck Thief. It's November 14th, and you're listening to the Straw Wolf Podcast. So last week I was talking about the fact that I had to quickly finish the podcast because I had to go off, you know, the next day and I was going to Skate Canada. And for those of you who don't know what that is, it's a competition uh, that people go to. Uh, It's kind of a venue for Canadians as well as uh, other uh, people from other countries. And it was here in Victoria and I went to our two-year-old arena, which I'd never been into before, and it's really... It's really ugly, and it still doesn't look like it's done. It's a big, ugly beige block. And uh, so I went to the very last day of competition, meaning uh, it was the dance finals and then the gala. And what this means is that uh, the dance finals, so uh, for every competition, there is a short and a long program. And a short program is about two minutes, and a long program is about four minutes. And the dance finals, it's made up of a man and a woman, and they do ice dancing. So there are four different categories for skating. There are men's singles, women's singles, pairs, which is a man and a woman, and he throws her uh, across the ice and up in the air. And with dance, they do holds and lifts. They don't do any throwing. So uh, I went to go see the dance finals, and uh, I was already really happy because um, one of our Canadians, uh, Canadian uh, women, Joanny Rochette, she placed first in the women's singles. And I was really happy about that. And then uh, I was looking forward to seeing Marie Franz Dubray and Patrice Lausanne. They're sort of our, our veterans uh, ice dancers. And uh, they ended up getting first, placing first in dance. And we also placed second uh, with a young uh, dance pair uh, named Virtue and Moyer. And I think they were world junior champions, and they looked really, I mean, I think this was one of their first senior competitions, and they looked very professional out there, and they're really young. I think they're only 17 or 18, and I was I was blown away by their performance, and I think, you know, they could really go somewhere if they, you know, keep on track here. But anyway, back to uh, Lausanne and Debray. They looked so cute out there, and I only learned this afterwards, but they're actually engaged. So sometime down the road, they're going to be getting married. And I really hope that they're uh, going to be here for 2010 to participate in the Olympics, the Winter Olympics that are going to be here. And ugh, I don't even want to get into that mess, cost overruns and labor shortages and all that. And But anyway, they, as I said, they looked very cute. He was, uh, they, they're such a cute couple. I mean, he was dressed in like black pants and white shirt and had a black undone bow tie that was probably been sewed down to his shirt. And she was wearing this... Uh, cute short uh, champagne colored dress that was very glittery not too sparkly though there were some really ugly costumes uh, on the ice that day and uh, we actually got to vote on who was the best dressed um, of the all the people out there so there was a sheet and it was the competition Skate Canada was hosted by HomeSense I think there's some sort of they're kind of like Home Depot anyway uh, so they had this little sheet, and it says, "Who do you think was the best dressed? Um, did it uh, jive with uh, their program and their music selection?" And of course, uh, Dubray and Lausanne won, and I think it was well deserved uh, because, well, they did look 
like the best dressed uh, group out there. And then after the dance competition was over and we got to stand for O Canada and it was great, uh, then it was the gala, which is uh, everybody from I think fourth place up from all the categories, so men's and women's sing singles, the pairs and the dance, they all came and, you know, did a little program, like two minutes of, it could be from any of, it could be from their short or their long program, it could be something fun, it could be from a past program, you know, maybe last year's or two years ago, and then in the end they had this sort of weird finale thing, it was cute, it was weird, uh, but it was great, I got to see, got to see uh, Stéphane Lambiel, he's a Swiss men's single skater and he what was he he's world two-time world champion or something crazy crazy spinner and uh... let's see who else was there johnny weir and fumia Suguri and oh it was it was great i had a great time and then when i got outside it was raining <laughs> but uh... i got to go with a lot of female relatives a lot of women in my family who are uh... Well, I don't want to say obsessed with skating, but uh, I got interested in, in it because of them. I sort of grew up watching um, skaters like uh, Kurt Browning and Elvis Stoiko and Born and Kratz. And, oh, geez, I could just rattle off names forever. But anyway, so uh, that was, oh, geez, that was two weeks ago, last week? Feels like a long time ago. But anyway, it was just last week. And I'm podcasting a little late. Uh, not usually I try and do it on the weekend, but my family came up for uh, Remembrance Day, and uh, I have a, sort of a I'm on reading break right now, so I have a little time. Well, I'd like to think that, but it's not true. So uh, on the 11th, I went with my mom down to Remembrance Day ceremonies down at the legislature, and as always, there's a big crowd there, and you got your people dressed up in uniform, and you got a oh what is it? I don't. It's not a cannon, it's not a gun, it's something, and then it shoots off 18 shots, and you just, it's its in the harbor, so you can hear it, uh, and I think they did 18 because the war ended in 1918, and uh, that's one of the, I mean, it seems really sort of insignificant compared to the rest of the ceremony, but I don't know, I just, I love the sound of it because it echoes through the harbor and off the mountains, and just as we were walking up, they were singing O Canada, and then we did the two minutes of silence, and we had, um, you know, lots of hymns being sung and placing the wreaths on the, the memorial. Or the, and uh, it was it was very good. Uh, I've gone down there now four years in a row, I think. So, uh, well, and I mean, uh, I, I don't know if I want to talk about this or not, but I've had uh, relatives who are, um, well... Like, I never met them, but they were in, uh, I've had them both in World War One and World War Two, and I'm very proud of what they, they did, because, uh, you know, if not for them, I might not necessarily be here. I know for certain that if my great-grandfather had not gone to war, I would not be here, because he went over the pond, and that's where he met, um, my great-grandmother. So... It's. Uh, I hate that it happened. I hate that both, both of them happened—the Great War and World War Two. But at the same time, I mean, you know, I'm grateful to be here, and uh, you know, I hope I can make a difference. And but anyway, enough about me. Uh, I talked about uh, last week how I was going to try and, and you know, I had made my first casserole about two, three weeks ago, and how I was going to try it again. The first time was really successful. It was really good, and I forgot to to put. Uh, 
the recipe up on the the blog and I keep forgetting to say hey this is my blog and you can reach me at this email so I'm gonna say that right now uh, my my website is straw wolf so straw uh, dash wolf at blogspot.com and if you want to email me uh, it's strawwolf at gmail.com okay so now that that's out of the way I tried a second casserole and it was uh, supposed to be fettuccine with basil pesto but I still had rotini left over from the last casserole so instead I made rotini with basil pesto and it didn't go over so well um, I think that's mainly because the basil pesto was really overpowering and I first of all I picked it because there weren't a lot of ingredients right you don't spend as much money if there you don't have to go out and get a lot of ingredients but uh, I'll put the I will put this recipe up and I will try and find the other um, rotini recipe with the pine nuts and the Havarti cheese but uh, and I don't necessarily recommend making any of these I'm just putting it up for fun but if I made it uh, the this rotini with basil pesto again I would definitely add more ingredients to add some more flavor to the piece because it was kind of bland compared to the the other one that had uh, it had parsley in it it had Havarti cheese it had tomatoes and tomato sauce and and then you got the pasta and it was very filling whereas this it was just I didn't really I mean I had some of it and then I tried to finish it off the next day and then I was just like uh, I'm just gonna chuck it because you know it's not it doesn't taste that great so anyway, that's my uh, my second casserole. Not not really a big success compared to the first one, but hey, at least I'm learning, right? That's important. And I did say that I was going to do a movie, and I said that I was going to do Psycho, so I am. But I have a lot of paper here, and I'm already at like 10 minutes. So hopefully this will take 10 minutes to explain, and then this will only be 20 minutes long. So I said, uh, whoa, geez, Halloween was a long time ago, but on Halloween... I went with a couple friends to go see Psycho that was showing at the campus uh, theater. And I was really, well, I guess I I was kind of surprised that the theater was practically empty. I think there were only 30 people in there. But, I mean, on the other hand, I guess people are out partying and drinking and who knows what, sleeping, because it was the late show. So I'm going to spoil this for you, so if you don't want to hear me totally ruin Psycho, which is a great, great movie... Uh, then I suggest you uh, turn off the podcast because I do the movie at the end of the podcast I'm not going to be talking about anything else interesting folks uh, and I do have to say that the ending for Psycho was ruined for me but uh, it was my own fault they were talking about the greatest movie endings or something uh, on TV and my dad had seen Psycho and they were going to talk about it next and I'd, n I'd only heard about parts of it you know, sort of knew Norman Bates from I think it was Hello Dolly um, Anthony Perkins, I mean, uh, with uh, the really old version, not with Barbara Streisand. And I'd heard about the shower scene, but I'd never seen it. And my dad said, you know, you might want to leave the room. You might not want to, you know, get involved. And, uh, you know, it would be a good idea if you uh, didn't watch this, because you haven't seen the movie, and, you know, it's going to ruin it for you. And I said, ah, I don't care. And then when I saw the ending, I didn't get it, because I hadn't seen the movie. Okay, so... We're gonna we're gonna dive right in here. So uh, this was made in 1960, black and white, and I do have some trivia afterwards, which I found interesting. So I'm gonna talk about that. But anyway, so the the movie's first scene it takes place in this cheap hotel room in Phoenix, and it shows Marion Crane, who's played by Janet Lee, and her boyfriend Sam Loomis, who's played by John Gavin. And if you're looking for eye candy in this movie, John Gavin is definitely it. 
I remember seeing the movie a couple years ago, and then when I saw it in the theater, I was like, jeez, I don't remember him at all, and I can't believe I, I wouldn't, because I would think I would remember him. But anyway, he's 6'4", uh, so that was a, a bonus. But anyway, so there, it says they're in their undergarments uh, after a Friday afternoon tryst. Tryst? Tryst? Anyway, so Marion is unhappy. She wants to be with Sam, but she's sort of ashamed at these little discreet meetings. And he, Sam explains that between his father's unpaid debts and his alimony that he pays to his ex-wife, he has to live in the back room of a store, and they can't get married until, you know, his, his finances improve. And uh, Marion returns to her job. She finds out that her boss has just sold a house to this rich man named Tom Cassidy, who's played by Frank Albertson, and he sold it to him for $40,000. Now, to us, $40,000, I mean, you could buy a car for less than that, but I guess in 1960, $40,000 was a lot of money. So uh, Cassidy, Tom Cassidy, he flirts with Marion and asks if she's unhappy, and he says, you know what I do about unhappiness, he tells her, I buy it off. And then he plops the $40,000 in cash down on her desk. He explains his daughter has never had an unhappy day in her life and that this house is to be her wedding present. And then uh, Marion's boss, he's, he doesn't like the fact that there's that amount of cash in the office. So he asks Marion to deposit it at the bank for the weekend. And then he says he'll get Tom to write a check the next week. But instead of going to the bank, Marion packs and leaves town with the money. So she essentially, essentially becomes a thief. And uh, she she sees it sort of as her ticket to her and Sam's happiness. You know, she can get out of town for a little while, and she can call Sam and say, come meet me here, and we can go and get married and live happily ever after. And uh, Hitchcock, he has this trademark tension uh, between uh, Marion, uh, well, with Marion, because she's convinced that people know about what she's done. She trades her car for another, she trades in her own car for a different one in California, because she's she thinks she's being followed and then she drives at night in the pouring rain which I kept thinking turn your wipers on and turn your lights on uh, they've got you know the the string music in the background and she's you know squinting and the rain is pouring down over her uh, her windshield and she doesn't turn her wipers on and it doesn't look like her lights are on it looks like you can't even see the road in front of her but anyway she uh, she realizes that you know she can't see the road, so she stops, and she turns off at the sign for the Bates Motel. She sees it, and she thinks, oh, thankfully, you know, I can find a place to sleep, and I don't have to worry about driving. So, looks like the place is, you know, deserted. It, it's empty, but then she notices the figure of a woman in the window of the house around the back of the motel. So, she honks her horn, and that's when she meets Norman Bates, played by Anthony Perkins. And he's the young owner who runs down, he runs down from the house and he helps her into the office. And Norman explains that uh, the motel doesn't have a lot of visitors because the new freeway bypassed um, the road she was following. So she somehow got off the main freeway. And only people who are lost or who take the wrong turn ever come there. But Norman, uh, he keeps it open uh, to give him some relief from taking care of his ailing mother. And uh, she finds out she's 15 miles from Fairvale and Sam but she decides that she's going to stay the night. So Norman offers to share his dinner with her rather than sort of force her back out into the storm because she says, oh, I can just go get some dinner. But he says, you know, I'm, I'm kind of lonely. Do you want to share dinner with me? And then you don't have to go back out into the rain. So uh, while they're settling, 
while she's settling into her room, Marion overhears a fight between Norman and his mother. She's got her window open, and Norman went back up to the house. And uh, the mother refuses. She says she doesn't want Marion coming up to the house, and she accuses Norman of having a cheap, erotic mind that disgusts her, and and that he lacks the guts to send Marion away. And Norman sort of brings her some food down to the motel, and he invites her into the office's parlor, which is really it's really gaudy. It's decorated really gross and he's got examples of all of his his taxidermy up there you know that's his hobby and birds are his favorite subject to uh stuff and uh as marion's eating she discovers norman's mother isn't just ill but she's also very controlling she you know she's very controlling of her son and uh norman kind of wants to free himself of her and he wants to leave her alone but he just he can't do it because she's ill and then Norman gets really angry when Marion says that, you know, you can't do that to someone you love, and says that, uh, or no, she, she, she Marion says, sorry, Marion says that he should commit his mother someplace to, to, you know, like a mental institution. And then Norman gets really angry. He says, he couldn't just commit her, and you don't do that to someone you love, and that she's harmless. And he says, we all go a little mad sometimes, haven't you? And Marion realizes that Norman's position is... Uh, you know, he's f much worse off than she is, and she comes to the conclusion that she has to go back to Phoenix, and she has to make amends before it's too late. And so she leaves, and then you get the infamous shower scene. Because, uh, Marion, she sort of underestimated, uh, exactly what's going on with Norman. So, Marion's showering in her hotel room, which is right next to Norman's office and the parlor, and the mother runs in and stabs Marion to death in the infamous shower scene and it's got this trademark score by a man named Bernard Herrmann and it's got these screeching violins which I absolutely loved it upped the tension and the suspense for me and uh, when Norman runs to the room uh, he's horrified to find the bloody corpse and he quickly cleans everything up because he's, he's accustomed to doing this and Marion's body and her car and her belongings and the money are all sunk in the swamp behind the Bates property trying to hide any evidence that she was here to try and protect his mother and the rest of the film deals with the search for Marion. And this was sort of the first time, really, I mean, you get a protagonist, you get the main character, and they're killed off halfway through the movie. So in the beginning, I was thinking, well, now, who am I supposed to feel sympathetic towards? I mean, the main character's gone. And I was a little lost the uh, first time I saw it. But uh, anyway, it's the search for Marion. And uh, Marion's sister, Lila, who's played by Vera Miles, she drives to Fairvale to confront Sam and she doesn't believe that her sister took the money. And uh, as they're talking, uh, someone else arrives, and it's a private detective, Milton Arbogast, played by a man named Balsam. And he was sent by Tom Cassidy, Marion's boss, to recover his money. And uh, Arbogast explains that he was following uh, Lila in hopes that she would lead him to Marion. But it's soon clear that Sam doesn't know where Marion is or that she stole $40,000. And then Arbogast traces Marion to the Bates Hotel. He calls Lila and Sam to let them know. He says, I found out where she was. I'm going to have a look around. And I'll call you back in a little while. And then while he makes the call, he sees a female figure crossing in front of a window up at the Bates house. And he believes it to be Norman's mother. And he tells Lila and Sam about, you know, I see the mother. and Maybe I can go talk to her. And then he hangs up and he returns to the motel. But his curiosity... Uh, 
you know curiosity killed a cat he climbs up to the old house to talk with the mother oblivious of her her dark side and when he reaches her room it's really weird the way he sort of walks up the steps and the way he falls down but she leaps out she slashes at his face he loses his balance falls down to the stairs and while he's laying on the ground she runs down and stabs him to death now when i saw this at halloween I had seen the movie before, I knew what to expect, but when he's walking up the stairs and you get this shot looking down on him, and there's a door just off to the right, I jumped three feet when the mother, you get the, the screechy violins, and the mother leaps out of the room and slashes at him. And the girls, there were girls behind us, and they'd never seen it, and they pretty much screamed. So, uh, you know, even after seeing it, I was still surprised by some parts of the movie. So, Arbogast is now dead. He's out of the picture as well. So, when he doesn't call Sam and Lila back, they're convinced that he must have discovered something important, possibly from Norman's mother, and they think that they should, uh, you know, call the police. So, uh, they drive to Fairfield, and they talk to the, the local sheriff, but he's skeptical. He doesn't see how Norman's mother could uh, have important information. And he explains that Norman lives alone at the Bates Motel and that his mother died eight years earlier in a particularly gruesome murder-suicide. And so Sam and Lila are really confused. Uh, you know, they say, if Bates's mother is up there, who's the woman buried out in the cemetery? So, you know, it seems like Mrs. Bates faked her own death and that she might have had a hand uh, with Norman in both Marion's and the money's disappearance. So Lam and Lila, Sam, Lila and Sam realize they have to go back to the motel to see what Arbogast discovered. And they arrive after Bates finishes hiding the detective's corpse in the swamp. So I think he pushes his car in as well. So now there are two cars, two bodies, and $40,000 in the swamp, folks. Now, they check the same... Lila and Sam check the same room that Marion was in. They find one of her earrings and a paper with the sum of $40,000 written on it. Then they think that Bates disposed of Marion, and he kept the money for himself. So, Sam distracts Norman in his own office, and Lila sneaks up to the house to talk with Norman's mother. And then Sam tries to pressure Norman into admitting that he stole Marion's money so he could leave the motel and start fresh, you know, get away from his mother. But then this turns into an argument, which escalates into violence, and Norman knocks Sam unconscious, which I found really difficult to believe. It just it looked fake you got anthony perkins who's very lithe very svelte and you got sam who's like this big burly six four guy who looks like he could be a linebacker for some football team and norman just like conks him and he's out but anyway so uh norman he goes back up to the house he realizes that lila must be up there he's like where's the girl you are with and Lila hears Norman enter the house, so she slips down to the basement, and she finds this semi-preserved corpse of Norman's mother. And that's the, the big uh, twist in the story. And she screams, and then the killer is revealed to be Norman, who comes down dressed up as his mother, holding a knife, and he's come to kill Lila. And uh, he's got even got a wig on, but Sam appears... Uh, just at the you know the nick of time and he wrestles the butcher's knife away from norman and then at the end of the film a forensic psychiatrist played by a man named mr oakland oh that's the actor he explains to lila and sam and the police that bates's mother though she was dead lived on in norman's psyche he says norman was dominated by his mother while she was alive and he, then he was really guilt-ridden over having married her eight years earlier as a teenager when uh, it looked like she was going to get married 
and uh, you know that there would be another man in her life and that maybe you know she wouldn't spend as much time with him or pay that much more attention to him so he tried to uh, erase the crime from his mind by bringing his mother back so physically he brought her back by exhuming her corpse so he dug her up and he preserved her with his taxidermy skills but mentally this was accomplished by giving half of his mind to the persona of his mother so he acts uh, as he believes she would talks as she did even dresses her in, a, in an attempt to erase her absence and the guilt and because Norman was so very jealous of his mother he assumes she'll also be jealous of any woman to whom he might be attracted so the Norman persona is convinced that his mother is not dead and he has no knowledge of her crimes and the last scene shows Norman Bates in a cell and his mind is completely dominated by the persona of his mother and as the scene blurs out to this uh, brief epilogue showing Marion's car being towed out from the swamp presumably to collect her body and the 40,000 in cash um, you see this overlap of the image of Norman Bates's mother's skull onto his face and that last scene still creeps me out because you get Norman he's staring directly out into the audience and his eyes are so creepy and uh, I think this is one of the reasons that uh, Norman Bates was voted I think the number one movie villain of all time so that's uh, that's me ruining the ending and the entire movie and now I have some uh, in well I find it interesting trivia uh, Alfred Hitchcock he this was originally a novel uh, by a man named Robert Bloch block anyway Hitchcock bought the rights to the novel anonymously for nine thousand dollars American and then he bought up as many copies of the novel as he could to keep the ending a secret and he filmed it in black and white because he thought it would be too gory in color and he wanted it to be inex as inexpensive as possible so it was made for under a million dollars I think it was about eight hundred thousand and then you have the infamous shower scene and the sound of the knife uh, penetrating into the flesh is actually the sound of a knife stabbing a cassava melon so uh, if you want to try this at home go find yourself a cassava melon I've never heard of them before but and then get a butcher knife and well there you go and the blood uh, in typical uh, black and white fashion uh, it was Bosco chocolate syrup that's what I've heard for you know in anything black and white chocolate syrup was used and that's what was used in this movie and uh, Marion, uh, remember I said how she was, she thought everybody knew what she had done and she gets rid of her old car and she gets a new one. Her new car that she gets in California, the license plate starts with NFB and these are Norman Bates's initials. Now I don't know what the F stands for, but anyway. And uh, the movie also, it features many references to birds. For example, the movie starts off in Phoenix and the major characters have the surname Crane there are stuffed birds that decorate the parlor of the motel building there are pictures of birds outside the bathroom door of Marion's motel room when Bates enters the bathroom right after the shower scene he knocks a picture of a bird from the wall Norman's line he talks uh, he says they cluck their thick tongues and shake their heads and Norman tells Marion that she eats like a bird and as well birds are his favorite animals to stuff as in a uh, taxidermy now I'm not sure why this was I'm not sure if this was in the novel or if this was something Hitchcock did or if this was a prelude to the birds I'm not sure when the birds were filmed but anyway I thought that was interesting and strange and uh, after the film was released Alfred Hitchcock received an angry letter from the father of a girl who 
She refused to have a bath after seeing Les Diaboliques in 1955. I, I guess that was something to do with a bathtub. And now she refused to have a shower after seeing this film. And Hitchcock, in his typical sort of black comedy style, sent a note back saying, send her to the dry cleaners. Now, I have heard stories that women were afraid to have showers after seeing this film. And I suppose if I was of the generation that first saw it when it first came out, I would feel the same way. But uh, having you know grown up in uh, the Echo Boomer era, uh, I've seen far more gory things, unfortunately, on TV and in movies. And uh, something else that happens in all of Hitchcock's film, he always has a cameo in the film, and I looked for him, and then I forgot about it, and I didn't see him at all. But apparently... He is outside Marion's office for about four minutes uh, wearing a cowboy hat. So next time you see the movie, uh, I would suggest that, you know, there's a there's the scene where she goes back to her office, and that's when you look for Hitchcock out the window. Okay, what else? Oh, right, so in the novel, written by Robert Bloch, or Bloke, or however you pronounce his name, Norman Bates is shown as this short, fat, older man, and he's not likable as a character. And Hitchcock wanted him to be young, handsome, and sympathetic. And he's more of a main character in the novel, whereas uh, we have Marion Crane as the main character in the, in the movie. And interestingly enough, you know that uh, very uh, well-known music or the, the soundtrack for the, the film... Uh, Alfred Hitchcock and Joseph Stefano, I'm not sure if he was the producer or not, they originally thought that the film should have a jazz score instead of uh, Bernard Herrmann's miniature string orchestra. Now, can you imagine Psycho having uh, jazz music as the soundtrack? It would completely change the the suspense and uh, the feeling of the film, and I don't think it would have worked, so I'm glad that uh, Bernard Herrmann was able to uh, convince them otherwise. And uh, the novel upon which the film is based, it was inspired by the true story of a man named Ed Gein, a serial killer who was also the inspiration for three other movies, Deranged, made in 1974, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, made in 1974 as well, and The Silence of the Lambs, made in 1991. So I don't know who this Ed Gein guy was, but uh, apparently popular with uh, the movie crowd. Okay, and... I thought this was a very strange uh, piece of information, and I don't know why it would matter, but I suppose in 1960 this was a big thing. This was the first American film ever to show a toilet flushing on screen. And now that is absolutely hilarious. That's laughable today, That's and weird. But I suppose this was also the time when, uh, when you had uh, TV shows, when you had a, a married couple or a family. The couple, if they were shown in their bedroom, they always had single beds that were, uh, you know, they didn't have a double bed, you know, because they couldn't be shown sleeping together or, you know, if they, it's it's like I Love Lucy. I think they had uh, two single beds, which was, and even in uh, Mrs. Miniver, I think they had two single beds. And it's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, that's not how it was, and I'm sure this was just the, the censors saying, oh, you can't have two people getting in bed together because it's just not done. And I suppose it was the same way for this uh, toilet flushing. But what's so... I mean, she ripped up pieces of paper and flushed it down the toilet. It's not like she used it and then flushed it. I mean, 
What's so wrong about a toilet flushing? Ugh, I mean, ugh, honestly. And uh, as well, uh, when they first started, the first day of shooting, the cast and crew all had to raise their right hand and promise not to divulge one word of the story. Because Hitchcock, oh, and, and Hitchcock also, he kept the last part of the script from the cast until he needed to shoot it. Because he did, well, as I said before, he bought the rights to the book anonymously and he tried to buy up as many copies of the book as he could. Because he, you know, he didn't want to spoil the ending for the cast, the crew, or the audience. And uh, Anthony Perkins, he was paid $40,000 American for his role as Norman Bates. And that's the same amount of money that Marion Crane embezzles. Okay, as well. This, this is, I think, a terrible thing for Alfred Hitchcock to do, but apparently he wanted to test the fear factor of the mother's corpse, Mrs. Bates. He placed it in Janet Lee's dressing room, and he listened to how loud she screamed when she found it. I mean, what if she'd had a heart attack and died? Then I think he would have felt badly. At least I hope he would. And, uh, as I said, uh, the last shot of Norman Bates's face has a still frame of a human skull in it, and the skull is that of the mother. And, uh, during pre-production, so before they started shooting, Hitchcock said to the press that he was considering Helen Hayes for the part of the mother. And as we, as I just, you know, mentioned in my summary of the, the film, this was a ruse, um, but several actresses wrote to Hitchcock and they wanted to audition for the role of the mother. So by doing this, he was able to sort of, you know, direct attention away from, you know, okay, so there's a mother in this film, but no one's been cast in it. As well, he also had a canvas chair with Mrs. Bates written on the back, um, placed and displayed on the set throughout shooting, and this sort of added to the mystery around um, who was the actress playing Mrs. Bates. Okay, so I think, yeah, I think that's all the trivia I have. Yes, that is all the trivia I have. So this, geez, this is over half an hour long. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to quickly wrap this up. Uh, hopefully I'm going to be able to, to keep doing uh, podcasting. I found out I have a, an eight-month job. I just got a job for eight months, and uh, there isn't really any internet access. Uh, otherwise, well not provided. I'd have to pay a lot of money to get it. So, uh, keeping my fingers crossed, seeing how it works out, and I'll, I'll talk to you guys next week, okay? Music for the Straw Wolf podcast is provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network.